Welcome to the INS Infusion Room, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. The Infusion Nurses Society is recognized as the global authority in infusion therapy and is devoted to setting the standard for infusion care. I'm Dawn Berendt, your podcast host and the Clinical Education and Publications Manager for INS. Hello, and welcome to this episode of INS Infusion Room. I have with me Becky Lynn. Becky, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Thank you. Becky, I'm going to ask you to tell all about yourself. Tell about who you are and your practice. I'm Dr. Becky Lynn. I've been practicing for about 20 years. I'm a PharmD by training, and I have my board certification pharmacotherapy specialty. So I'm a specialist in just generalized pharmacotherapy. I worked about 10 years in the critical care setting, and then for the last eight to nine years, I have been a professor with the University of Wyoming, Mm -hmm. and I'm also on faculty with the Fort Collins Family Medicine Residency in Fort Collins, Colorado. My passions are infectious diseases, critical care medicine, interdisciplinary care, interprofessional care and education, and wellness. You have such a rich background of experience, and I've heard one of your presentations, and you are so articulate. Thank you. (laughs) I appreciate that. So today, we're going to talk about antimicrobial stewardship. Thank you so much for agreeing to have this conversation. So I'm going to start out by asking you to define for our listeners exactly what is antimicrobial stewardship. Yeah, and I think in doing that, I first like to let you know what, think of stewardship, stewardship of anything first. So I'm going to define that in a reverse order, but stewardship, we can be stewards. If we're parents, we're stewards of children. We can be stewards of other medications. When I was in the ICU, antimicrobial stewardship was just in early stages in Colorado where I was practicing in its infancy of being a buzz term and how, what do we do with that? And so in the ICU, we were stewards of sedation for propofol and midazolam for patients on ventilators. But stewardship is preserving what we care about. Mm-hmm. And so antimicrobial stewardship, we care about antimicrobials. And I want to give you the distinction between antibiotics and antimicrobial stewardship because they are often used, those terms used interchangeably. Antibiotics are agents that act against bacteria and antimicrobials are agents that act against bacteria, viruses, fungus, protozoa, etc. But they can be used interchangeably. So it would be worth preserving the efficacy and the safety of antibiotics and antimicrobials. Okay, so my next question is, can you tell us about the development and resistance timeline? Yes. So when we think about antibiotics, a lot of people, you know, might be familiar with older generation penicillins, some of the first kids on the block, so the penicillin. And over time, penicillin was great, but the more we used it and the more we used it inappropriately, not 
so much in that we knew better then, and we're talking in the 1930s, 1940s, but we only know by our use in penicillin back then how along the way did we change things, get new guidelines, shorten durations, change antibiotics, drugs of choice. But if we look back at the penicillins in the 1930s and 40s, and then we had vancomycin come out in 1955 for MRSA, that worked up until we saw the first resistance of vancomycin about 1987. Then we had agents in that pipeline that we could use as alternatives. It, for example, VRE or vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. So then we started having linazolid come out around 2010. I'm not sure of the exact date. We had daptomycin. We had ceftaroline. So we had other agents in different classes that were susceptible to MRSA. So bring it forward now to current day. What efforts are you involved in? So efforts that I'm involved in is really to look at what's come out uh, and been developed and on the market in the last, you know, keeping up with new drug developments and how those could implicate our practice, help us to go back and understand what was happening in those years of using those agents that now we know that we have resistance to and we've had to develop in that drug pipeline. Um, there was an initiative back in 2010 from the IDSA, Infectious Diseases Society of America, that said the goal by 2020 was to have 10 new agents because of the resistance timeline that I had just described. And in that, there was drug development for agents not necessarily new classes, but agents within already existing classes that just had a different mechanism of action so that those they weren't broken down by the enzymes by the bug, that traditional agents in those classes would have conferred resistance. So efforts to do that as a pharmacist, in my perspective, is how to use them safely and effectively. So being knowledgeable about resistance patterns nationally through the CLSI, which is the Clinical Laboratory Specialty Institute, which sets the MIC set points, and taking that data in conjunction with the rest of the ID stewardship team at my institution and uh, looking at antibiogram trends, resistance rates, and patterns, and knowing agents that are on our formulary, how to use them effectively in the empiric setting, and then when we use it as direct or targeted antimicrobials for the patient. So I'm going to take a little bit of a left turn here, Dr. Lynn, and I want to talk about um, resistance and what you think about the potential impact of how we feed animals, how we cultivate um, fast growth in animals, and, and what impact the use of antibiotic in our food chain has on antimicrobial resistance? The simplest answer I have to that is that 80% of antimicrobial resistance is due to agriculture. Particularly from animal sources? Yes. So we see this cycle. We see this, this cycle that's happening and the need for stronger and stronger antimicrobials to be developed that are going to be able to address the next strain of infection. So can we continue 
on that path and still hope that science is going to evolve and continue to create the next anti-infectives for us? Yeah, that's an interesting question and one that I've pondered, like how, how long can we be doing this? Um, because I feel like that sometimes, to be honest with you, that it, it, instead of being proactive with changing things, we're a little bit reactive. Um, and I think that's, that's hard because you're talking about very lucrative industries and changing their practices. So I think that consuming any animal product, maybe that doesn't have exposure to antibiotics, organic foods, non-antibiotic, raised cattle and chickens, I think that is helpful. Um, I think the problem there then becomes people's access to that because those are more expensive. Um, It's not as mass produced as conventional uh, meat and dairy. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's an opportunity cost. If, If it costs more money, you have less opportunity for something else. So you know, but I think as time has gone on, we are seeing that we all have more access to those organic, non-antibiotic-fed animals. So let's change the conversation yet again, and let's bring it down to the consumer level in the healthcare setting. When many individuals first hear about a program called antimicrobial stewardship, it's a mom or a dad or someone bringing in a child with an ear infection and we're not getting the antibiotic that we expected. That's our first encounter. And we we don't know what to think about that. My child's in pain. We usually get antibiotic for this. We're not going to do that this time. What's next? Let's talk about it at that level and help us understand right there. Yeah. So as healthcare providers, um, if we're in direct patient contact, then we are at the hub of the communication for all the stakeholders involved. And the main stakeholder being the patient and the patient's caregiver. And so I believe that if you believe that the patient does not have a bacterial infection or an infection that requires an antimicrobial, so it could be an antifungal, that if it's something that's viral but doesn't require an antiviral, that you just say that and you communicate and put it out there because I think that if you can educate yourself as the healthcare provider in communicating to the patient who is the major stakeholder that you don't have a bacterial infection and antibiotics aren't going to help, Mm -hmm. that that color of your sputum or phlegm is green because X, Y, and Z, not because of bacteria, I think the more that we can connect with that human that's sitting across from us that's sick and yes, in pain and we can empathize, but I think that the more that we can connect with them with the information of what we believe on a human level, very basic level, that here from my experience and it's my clinical opinion that you don't have a bacterial infection. And so giving them the reassurance that it will get better with time, you hear the supportive measures you can use, but if I do give you an antibiotic that's not necessary, here is the collateral damage. Mm -hmm. So if I give your child the penicillin and then they become allergic and have, you know, they could have an anaphylactic reaction or they could get diarrhea, not only the side effects, but something worse down the line. 
a Clostridium difficile infection, which is much harder to treat. Then you really do have an infection. So the collateral damage that happens from giving any medication, really, could because you don't get something for nothing. And there is always an effect. We take medication because there's an effect. Both the intended effect and the unintended effects yes. of those medications. Yes, there's a lot of unintended consequences. What haven't we talked about today about antimicrobial stewardship that you'd like to share? I, I think I want to talk about when people think about or healthcare providers, and I think apart from physicians and pharmacists, historically it was, we believed that when antimicrobial stewardship teams first came about, that it was, that was the hub of the team, was the infectious disease physician, an ID pharmacist or a pharmacist, and they really ran the show for the ID team. And while that might be true in some subsets, really the antimicrobial stewardship team is everybody who has contact with the patient, takes care of the patient regarding antibiotics, antimicrobials, matching up indications with appropriate drug, and when there's no longer an indication to get rid of that. So I think anybody on the healthcare team that's taking care of a patient who has an infectious disease is on the team. I think that if you go into it um, believing that you are on the team, that helps you to negotiate those conversations that need to take place between healthcare providers in order to give safe and effective care to the patient. And sometimes the barriers to that would be our perceived power differentials mm -hmm. in the teams. So I would say we're all on the team. It doesn't have to be something so formal that we're doing retrospective and prospective data collection and presenting it to physician groups or hospital administration groups, but anybody taking care of the patient with an infectious disease is on the ID team. Sure. It has been such a pleasure talking to you today, Dr. Lynn. Do you have any closing thoughts? I want to uh, tell the listeners today that um, in the antimicrobial stewardship world, you don't get something for nothing. So think about that before you give that antibiotic. And it's okay to de-escalate. We can have those conversations. Sometimes they're tough. Um, sometimes it takes assertiveness, but we can just talk as a team. It's um, collaborative practice. So we just need to be communicating. Thank you so much. You've been a wonderful guest today, and I appreciate you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Thank you. This concludes this episode of INS Infusion Room, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. We welcome your comments. You can reach us at infusionroom at ins1.org. That's infusionroom at ins1.org. Thank you for listening.